0: Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. And the purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired word of God. All right, so I think we're good. So We'll go ahead and have the opening prayer and start from there. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. So, Lord, we ask you to help us as we learn a little more about the Gospel of John to appreciate uh, the many ways that our Lord is revealed through these different Gospels, um, especially with John as he brings to us uh, a, a new and a fresh image of our Lord and how he presents that in a way that brings out his divinity and his humanity and also the many ways that it draws us into a relationship and into a loving relationship especially with our God. We ask you to be with us and bless us and our families and we ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Alright, so today we're going to look at John, and John is a a little more difficult than some of the synoptic gospels. Remember the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, they share a very similar style, and um, you can find a a lot of very close parallels between those three gospels. Um, John, it seems, comes from a different tradition. Obviously, it's a Christian tradition and all, but When I mean different tradition, I mean it doesn't share a lot of the same sources um, for what composed and and brought out this particular gospel. Now, the author and the date, there is, uh, well, there has been actually for quite a while, some discussion about who the author is and when exactly it was written. And traditionally, they would say that it was written by the beloved disciple. And traditionally, they would say that that was John, the son of Zebedee. Now, there is a little bit of debate among scholarly circles, and it kind of depends on which scholars you listen to. Um, Some will say that it definitely is the beloved disciple who is John. Others will say, yes, it is the beloved disciple, but the beloved disciple is not actually John because there's this other disciple in place of John, and it draws a little confusion into the mix. So therefore, that beloved disciple is not specifically the same person as John, the son of Zebedee. Others will say that although it looks as if it was written by one particular person called the beloved disciple who calls out testimony, because the Gospel of John says specifically you know, that I write these things and I attest to their truth, but what uh, some scholars say is that actually comes from a tradition or a school um, of John. And so there's this, uh, you know, like this church that has a very strong um, John influence and so eventually when this all gets written down this school of John so to speak you know people that are following that way of thought and that type of theology write down a gospel and so it's actually not one particular person but it's a combination of several people so if you're wondering where most scholars actually fall they actually fall in this in between type of thing. Most will say the beloved disciple was the author of the Gospel of John, who also had some embellishment from the followers. So that's kind of what most say. Um, I'm maybe a little in the minority because I say that it was John the beloved disciple and it also was John the son of Zebedee, because um, there's a strong historical tradition for that. Um, some of the early church fathers who were around very close to the time when this gospel was written uh, make references to this beloved disciple being John and so therefore, I say that you know that historically was so close with so the number of years, and there would have been um, a very good um, record of these different people at the time and so therefore if it wasn't true or that if the um, if the legend or the history wouldn't have been accurate, then I think people would have probably made a point of that. And so anyway, I typically tend to think that they're both the same. But even if they weren't, in a way it doesn't matter uh, because whoever the followers of the beloved disciple were in that school, they so respected his train of thought and his way of writing and his way of theology um, that they wouldn't have changed the essence of the message anyway. So does that make sense? um that's kind of part of the uh the thing you know it's like with with a lot of these different um scholars when they talk about authorship and stuff they come at it mostly with a sense of doubting and so they say well this is what tradition says but um do we have good evidence for that tradition and oftentimes they can say well there's some evidence for it but there's a lot of evidence that speaks to the contrary and therefore they point out the contrary positions and in doing that it it just kind of adds a doubt to who is the principal author. A good example of this, of course, is Matthew. Um, We call it the Gospel of Matthew, not because there's anything in the scripture that says that Matthew wrote it, um, but because sometime later on down the road, Matthew got assigned to that because the name was only mentioned in the Gospel of Matthew. So anyway, that's kind of tedious stuff, I know. But in this case, though, I think we do, even more than some of the other Gospels, have a relatively... Um, clear idea similar to Luke that it was someone um, that was very close to Jesus and the school of theology that formed around that um, was unique in a way that it was different than the synoptic gospels yet in its own way has very it's a very strong and original source of the material that came from the life and times and the teachings and the events of Jesus all right, so in other words, you know, like if you get multiple sources of an account, then it's kind of nice when you get a totally different source that has the same account but explains it in a, in a very unique and original way. And so that's what we have here at the Gospel of John. All right, so um, something in particular, and, and why, they, uh, why scholars tend to think that it probably wasn't um, John the son of Zebedee who wrote this, and also um, wasn't maybe all the beloved disciple who wrote it, is that there are some duplications. And we'll talk about some duplications that there might be good reasons why there's duplication. Um, But an example of this is uh, um, chapter 14, 31, and chapter 18, 1. Let's see if I can find these real quick just to show you an idea. And that means that it seems that in John's gospel, sometimes he repeats himself. And the... Logic is, if he would repeat himself, then it doesn't really make much sense that it would be the same author. You know, because why wouldn't he just say it once? All right, so here's 1431. Let me turn the page. Okay, so here's Jesus saying, He has no power over me, but the world must recognize that I love the Father, and I act just as the Father commanded. Okay, so now if we go to 18 verse 1. Okay, after he said all this, Jesus left with his disciples and ca- crossed the Kidron Valley where there was a garden into which he went with his disciples. Judas the traitor knew the place also since Jesus had often met his disciples there. So Judas brought the ki- cohort to this place together with the guards and the chief priests and the Pharisees. Knowing, all right, that doesn't make sense. Okay, what was I doing? there was a logic to this, let's see, oh, after he had said all this, maybe that was it, what was I thinking, there was a connection, I actually saw it, and now I'm looking at it like, what was it, 14.31. I don't know. Well, anyway, I'm going to move on because I don't know what I was thinking. I think I wrote down the wrong number. So don't worry about it. So, all right. So we'll look also this. We have two endings. So there's chapter 20, verse 30. So if we go to that one. Okay, so so here's kind of a conclusion, right? And it sounds like a conclusion. There were many other signs that Jesus worked in the sight of the disciples But they are not recorded in this book. These are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing this, you may have life through his name. All right, so it sounds almost like the conclusion to the whole gospel, right? But if you read on another chapter, you'll see another conclusion. So this is chapter 21, verse 24 and 25. This disciple is the one who vouches for these things and has written them down. And we know that his testimony is true. There was much else that Jesus did. If it were written down in detail, I do not suppose the world itself would hold all the books that would be written. So it seems almost like there are two endings to the gospel, similar to like Mark. And so many scholars actually say that, well, that means chapter 21 must have been um, added on a little later. right? So that's one of the chief arguments for that. Um, as you're going to see a little later, there's, There's another explanation for why um, sometimes these things duplicate themselves in this particular book. Okay, so the dating of this gospel was probably no earlier than the 90s A.D. and probably closer even to 100. So it it was the latest of the gospels that was written. And together with the book of Revelation, these are some of the latest and last books of the Bible that we have. So... Um, anyway, that's just something to keep in mind as well. Um, if you look at the tradition, you've got Jesus who lived, died, rose from the dead, began the church. Within the first 30, 25 to 30 years, then the first books of the Bible start to be written, like 1 Thessalonians and in fragments of other ones of Pauline letters and the beginnings of the Gospel of Mark. And um, most of the books written from 55 To 70 or even to 85, you know, you're you're talking about a good number of years that we're going on here. So the theology and the reflection of what happened and why it happened is beginning to get a little more profound. So that's why, for example, if you're reading um, something like 1 Thessalonians and then later you read the book of Romans, you'll say, wow, Romans is so much more uh, theological and profound. Well, that's because, you know, they've had years for the for the reason and the why Jesus did what he did to develop. So the theology begins to develop as well. And so by the time you get to around the time of John's gospel, the theology has been reflected on, developed, and then finally written down. And so that's why in John's gospel in particular, it tends to be the most profound of the different gospels. Now, that's not to say that, for example, Matthew or Luke doesn't have a very profound theology underpinning it. It just means that John has had more years to reflect and to expound what the event of Jesus' death and resurrection means. And so the way he presents it is in a way that is much more eloquent in, in some ways, at least theologically. Interestingly enough, though, that uh, John's Greek is the one of the easiest um, forms of Greek to understand and translate. Because it's, although the theology is the most profound, the language that he uses is the most simple. And so he's using a very common Greek, but in that common expression of that language, he's expressing a very profound theology, which uh, to me speaks something about, you know, if you really want to speak profound about Jesus, you don't need to use a bunch of fancy words and eloquent language. You can use, you know, an eloquent thought and a deepness and content, and it seems that for the scripture writer and John especially, that seems to be the most important thing. But anyway, where John was written was northern Palestine to Ephesus. So Ephesus was in the way on the way to Turkey was in Turkey, but um, between Ephesus and northern Palestine, you know, it could have been up around between Syria, Lebanon, and, and Turkey. But all that area is. You know somewhere in there is where the Gospel is written, and they they think that's the case because they've got some Jewish details first of all, and then also there's references in in details of the Samaritans with the geography and all that, and also there's a reference to the Hellenistic Jews at the same time, so that combination um appears that you know, there's a combination of Jews, Samaritans, and Hellenistic Jews. And so that's why, in the region north in Palestine up to Ephesus, um, shows that that would be a logical place for this gospel to have been written. So, which would mean that there would be a different content than what you'd find in, for example, the Gospel of Mark, which was written in Rome. You know, there it's primarily Gentile, um, where here you're going to have a good mix of Hellenized Jews as well as, as Jews, and then even converted Samaritans. And so anyway, you've got a, uh, a good reason why John was writing the way he was looking at those details. All right, now looking at the sources, much of the Gospel of John, as I mentioned, doesn't come from uh, Matthew or Luke, although there are some similarities and some parallels um, mostly with the Gospel of Luke, and then less so with Matthew and Mark. And... One of the reasons for that is, you know, it might have been the influence of Luke's gospel and the Pauline thought that came with it. But even so, most of the gospel of John tends to stand, you know, on its own tradition. And the source of the gospel is different than the source of the synoptic gospels. Now, I'm not talking about the ultimate source, you know, like the oral tradition. That all remains the same, but it was the. Um, The way that developed, I think, that I'm saying that that was unique in its own way. All right, so let's see. Um, We do have a bit of an outline. When you take the gospel as a whole, the first part of the gospel is what you would call a prologue. And that's the first chapter, verses 1 through 18. You all know that one. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. It's almost like poetic in nature. So the prologue is... It sets the stage. And actually, interestingly enough, if you take the prologue, you can expand the prologue, and it actually fits um, thematically throughout the whole rest of the gospel. So it's almost like a uh, an introduction that will tell you what will come later. And so if you carefully read the first chapter, you'll see that in there. The uh, second part is what we call the book of signs. That's from chapter 1, verse 19 through... um, chapter 12 now these different signs are miracles and events in the life of Jesus and each one of these particular signs has an importance but they tend to be very dramatic miracle events that speak of something greater and so you have these opening scenes and then all of a sudden you have these signs and miracles and that goes all the way through chapter 12 Uh, the last of these signs is the raising of Lazarus all right you know lazarus come out he comes out okay so after the book of signs has a very clear um, change and that is then begins what they call the book of book, book of glory now the gospel of john doesn't say this specifically it doesn't say you know okay this is the book of signs and now I'm going to transition and now it's the book of glory but it's just that the contrast is is so great that that almost all scripture scholars have classified the book according to this way because they realize these signs are primary importance and then as soon as the book of glory begins you're going to have something that is much more important than Jesus's miracles, even the raising of Lazarus, which would be what do you think? The Jesus himself, yeah, his death and resurrection and so that'll be um, that begins the book of glory and so it starts out with a farewell discourse, chapters 13 through 17, so this is Jesus' big, long speech, and it's before he goes to his cross. So he's he's educating and training his disciples before he goes to his promised land. Now, does that sound similar to another great prophet in history that you might think of? Starts with an M. He was Jewish. (laughs) Yeah, Moses. Yeah, so Moses was, uh, um, he was in the desert, right? And then before they went into the promised land, he had a big long discourse uh, to edify and encourage the Hebrews who were entering into the promised land. Well, in a similar way, we've got Jesus doing that with his disciples, the new Israel and the new Moses. Um, But at the same time, this um, big long priestly prayer that Jesus gives really reflects a similar style like you would find in the book of Deuteronomy. Because if you read Deuteronomy, it's a lot of speech. You know, Moses is talking quite a bit. It's a little different than um, some of the other gospels, where they tend to be focused more on um, writing down of facts and, and historical chronicle, chronicles and things like that. But anyway, so there you have this farewell discourse, which you know takes up a few chapters: thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen. So you got five chapters, well, four chapters up till seventeen, and then you've got the passion of Jesus. And um actually that includes seventeen. So the passion of Jesus begins at eighteen and goes through nineteen. And so you've got a couple chapters here of Jesus' death, and um you know that is considered the high point. All right, so the, the book of glory finds its culmination or its high point at the the actual death of Jesus, the passion of him. And then the last part of the book of glory is the resurrection, which is chapter twenty. And then there's the epilogue, which is that additional chapter I was talking about at chapter 21. All right, so for the sake of argument, um, I would say you probably should include chapter 21 into the greater overall Book of Glory. Um, Even if it was written and tacked on afterwards, it's still part of the construct and theme of that Book of Glory. All right, so now we're going to look at the writing style. Okay, so first of all, I mentioned this already, that uh, of all the Gospels, John has the easiest Greek. And when it was time to translate um, any of the Gospels, I looked forward to John because it was the easiest. Um, But it was also the most complex in a couple ways. First of all, the order itself was the most complex. And what I mean is even though the words and the sentences were, were using simple language... The way it was constructed was extremely complex with all the parallels, and and we'll look at a chiasm here afterwards, but uh, the systematic approach to putting this gospel together in a way that was um, interwoven in in a nature that was very different than some of the other gospels um, showed a real genius and ingenuity in the way it was constructed. So the construct and the style of the gospel and the theology of the gospel are probably the most complex, yet the language was the most simple. Okay, so um, John loved repetition. So remember in the beginning there when I tried to show you a duplication that I couldn't find? But anyway, trust me, there are duplications, and I'll show you some of those. But here's an example. If you go to John chapter 6, this is a very familiar bread of life discourse. Okay, so starting with verse 53. Now listen to how the words will repeat themselves so often. So, in all truth I tell you, if you do not eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Anyone who does not eat my flesh and drink my blood, who does eat my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. And I shall raise that person on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me, and I live in that person. Just as the living Father sent me, and so I draw life from the Father, whoever eats me will also draw life from me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread our ancestors ate. They are dead, but anyone who eats this bread will live forever. All right, do you see the the repetition that's going on there? And it's a style. It's, It's on purpose, actually whereas in our you know 21st century world we don't write this way anymore but in the ancient world it actually was a popular way of writing and the idea there is that if you have these parallels and repetitions that it drives home it drives home the central character of the message you know for some of us i think we'd lose it but in this case like what do you think is the the central character of the message that's being repeated over and over yeah, it's the bread of life discourse, but what is the main idea? You notice how many times it says eat? Yeah. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. You know. This is this is the idea that there's there's these there's these parallels that are drawn out and this repeating theme that would be for an ancient writer especially they would be able to pull out of that the central theme very easily, where we have to kind of struggle with a little bit. Boy, he seems like he's kind of repeating himself. Is he senile? No, it's not that. It's just you know repetition to try to get a point across. All right. Now we're going to look at this chiasm here, and it's chapter 19. So this is uh, Jesus before Pilate. Now, if you remember, what a chiasm is is a series of parallels where the central point is most important, and you're going to find repeating themes and words in each one of these. So, for example, if you look at 1919 all the way to 1921, I mean, it's only a a few phrases that are being read here. Let's go ahead and do it from here. Okay, so do you see where it says A, B, C, and then B and A again, right? So C would be the middle, There are two B's. There's the regular B, and then there's the B prime, and then there's the regular A, and the regular, and then the A prime. And so if you take both A's, those are the frame, right? So those are the two outside sections of the thought. And then if you go one inside from that, from the frame, now you're in the picture, so it would be the two B's, B and B prime. And then if you go even to the middle, that would be the middle of the picture, you know, and that would be C. Or if you want to look at it like a hamburger, right? You've got the two buns on the outside, and let's say you've got lettuce inside the buns, and then you have the meat in the middle. Well, it's a similar thing. So the two A's on the end would be the bun, the two B's would be the lettuce, and then the C would be the meat. And so the ideal here is that the meat would be the focal point of the phrase. And so... When we, this, once again, when we hear this kind of language, we're a little confused because we're, we're listening to it with our 21st century ears, and it just seems like a lot of repeating words. But look how it all kind of layers and, and really brings it to the middle there. So Pilate also wrote a title and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Okay, so here's the word Pilate, and then wrote, and then King of the Jews. Okay, so you've got those three things. All right, now you look at the last section, right? This is the last part of the phrase, chapter 19, 21b. And then the Jews say, Do not write the king of the Jews, but say this man said I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. Okay, so you're here, here you have Jews, Pilate, and written. You know, in the first part of this phrase, in the last part. Now, if you go, if you go to the next part, Many of the Jews read this title for the place where the Jews, where Jesus was crucified near the city. All right, so that's B. If you go to B prime, and the chief priests of the Jews then said to Pilate. So here you have the Jews paralleling. And now you go to the middle, right? And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Okay, here again, you've got the word written. You know, so you've got written framing it and then written in the middle. And then here's the, the idea is you've got it um, with... Uh, Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, and so here you have Pilate, Jesus, and the Jews. You know, and so so the idea here is that, um, you know, well, where Jesus is getting condemned and he's brought forth by the chief priests and the Romans, and well, um, at the same time, the idea of it being written, you know, talks about Jesus being, you know, the Messiah who was written about, and also being, you know, being in, written in Greek, Hebrew, and Greek, Greek Hebrew and Latin shows that he is actually the messiah of all. You know, and so they're they're doing this in a way showing this layering style. Well, this is just a little example of that, but if there was a book actually written called The Genius of John and it it was uh I think it's out of print now, but it was written in the 80s and this this book was really fascinating because it took the entire Gospel of John and showed how the entire gospel was one big chiasm that had all these subsections in it. That all interrelated. So if if you're bored, <laughs> you could actually literally go through the entire Gospel of John and find multitudes of these kind of connections like this. And it was all in in this book was actually a thesis, and his whole thesis was John did this on purpose. Therefore, it makes sense that all this repetition wouldn't speak of multiple authors. It's actually a good indication of a single author who was such a genius, he put all this together in a way that seems odd to us today, but back then, it would have made sense. Which is why I tend to think it was written by primarily one author, but anyway. So that's the uh, writing style of the Gospel of John. Now we need to get to the the meat of the matter here. All right, these are some of the themes that come out in the Gospel of John. Um, Just to give you a little backdrop, around 100 A.D., the church was starting to become developed, and it was becoming more secure. Um, it was no longer struggling uh, t- to make itself known. It was starting to get to the point where it was getting established. And because of that, the um, competition was coming from different religions and different, um, different groups. One of the groups that would have been competition would have been what they called the Gnostics. Um, some of the early church fathers wrote about the Gnostics, Because the Gnostics were distorting true Christianity and trying to make it into something different. You may have heard of Gnostic Gospels, for example. And what Gnostics do is they say that really what salvation is all about is secret knowledge. And if you have that secret knowledge, then you'll be saved. And if you don't have that secret knowledge, you won't be saved. Um, Think of it almost like a secret society or something like that. You know, you get in, and you know, and if you're lucky enough, you can work your way into this group, and then they'll they'll reveal to you secret knowledge that no one else knows. But once you know it, you know, almost like a conspiracy theory. Now you've got salvation, but everyone else they're just kind of the stupid people on the outside. And if they're not saved, it's their own problem. I've got my secret knowledge. Well, this was actually extremely popular in the day. And we have remnants of it today, too. It probably doesn't take much to think about that. You know, almost like a spiritual snobbery. Um, when you get people that are overly into a, a type of snobbery um, with their religion, then oftentimes they can easily get into this Gnostic way of thinking. Like, I've got the secret knowledge and no one else does. Like some of the uh, end-of-the-world cults and stuff like that, um, they, they operate in the same manner. So So John is actually... Contrasting that, but at the same time speaking using language that even Gnostic people um, would have maybe been familiar with, because these words and these terms and the philosophies that they came from, because you know the Greek philosophies in the day were extremely popular, he was speaking to people who would have been familiar with this kind of terminology. All right, so, you know, it'd be for example, if I'm speaking today about Christianity, I would use 21st century American terms. To explain it, well, same way John's using these sort of things, and because Gnostics focused on you know like like this uh, dualistic thing, John to a certain degree uses a lot of that same terminology, but then he ends up bringing it to a different type of conclusion. Okay, so for example, here's some of the contrasts. Um, John will contrast flesh and spirit. You know, you'll hear Jesus say things like, "You're of the flesh, but you know, you should be of the spirit." You know, flesh, spirit, um, darkness and light. It's another contrast. You know, you're um, in the dark, but I am in the light. You know, and he'll he'll kind of talk like that too. Um, lies and truth. You know, the father of lies. You know, the lord of truth. You know, he'll he'll kind of contrast that. Also, knowledge and misunderstanding. You know, people who are in Christ. They have knowledge. People who aren't, they'll misunderstand. <coughs> um, there's also life and death. You know, you're either alive in Christ or you're dead. You know, that's that kind of thing. Um, that which is above and that which is below. Like Nicodemus, he's talking about the, you know, you've you know, got to be born from above. Just, how, how do you not know this, you know, because you're below. So that, that whole above, below, which is also world and heaven, matter and spirit, um, slave and free. All these examples of these polar extremes that show that if you are for Christ, you're going to be on the right side of each one of those contrasts. Okay, so anyway, that's also one of the, uh, um, you know, the, the idea of these these polar opposites is very common in, in, Mark, in uh, John's Gospel. Also, John writes in allegories, now, in the other Gospels, we have what they call parables, which you've all know parables, right? The kingdom of God is like, you know, so he's using an image to explain a story or uh, to have uh, an image that talks about what something is like. Whereas an allegory, um, it's a direct reference. I am the vine. I am the sheep gate. You know, there are all these different uh, images of allegories. I am um, the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. Now, you know, is Jesus literally, you know, a vine? Well, metaphorically, he is. You know, and he explains that in his in his uh, allegory. But whereas the synoptic gospels rely on parables, the John's gospel relies exclusively on allegories. There are no parables in John's gospel. So, interesting point. So, if you want to trick people, you can say, you know, if someone says something like, um, you know, what gospel doesn't have any parables? See, you would know that one. All right, something else about, uh, you'll be able to use that at work. So, now, uh, something else about John is he narrows in and down on characters and so you'll, you'll see like a crowd or something like that. And the more you read, all of a sudden it starts working its way down into two particular people because you've got these conversion stories that come out of it. Um, very um, often it's with these um, signs that he does, like the man born blind. You know, first you have the Pharisees and then you have the parents and you have all these different people and they're all accusing him and it seems a little chaotic, but then the dialogue starts coming down until it's just very simply between Jesus and this, this blind man. And the idea is that he just cuts through the crowd and then gets to the point. And that's what's going on with, with a lot of that. So the character development in John's gospel is is very unique in that way. That it really does get to the heart of the matter. And like with all the different um, stories that you get especially, you'll notice that, that Jesus just kind of penetrates into that and you know, that works, this progression of conversion. And typically with these different miracle stories, conversion comes over a certain amount of time with this dialogue that Jesus brings the person into conversion through that. So it kind of shows the conversion doesn't happen just instantly in John's gospel. There's this progression that slowly builds until there's this absolute conversion because of one of the signs in the actions of Jesus all right, so now we also have in John's gospel um, a very strong sense of sacraments, and that's especially the sacraments of baptism and the sacraments of Eucharist. And so just to give you some ideas of that, you'll you'll look at the language that's used. For example, bread of life discourse. Very Eucharistic theme. Also with the, the idea of water and blood. You know, well, blood, of course, Eucharist, water being baptism. You see these paralleled in the gospel as well. So it starts in Cana. So remember when when uh, you have this water turned, turned into wine? And this is the first sign, right? Well, then when you have Jesus on the cross and they lance the side, what comes out of his side? Water and blood. You know, this is the um, the parallel with the beginning and the end. Remember when I was talking about those parallels? So this is part of the huge chiasm if you want to get fancy with the gospel there. But... Um, that that blood and water or wine and water actually represents baptism in the Eucharist. And that's why when Jesus is lanced at the side, you know, where his rib is, and then out comes water and blood, it's almost like Jesus, the new Adam, you know, this rib that, you know, bore out Eve becomes the rib that bores, bears the new church. And that is born through water and blood, Right. So baptism and Eucharist, um, there's there's a very strong connection with sacraments, but it's not always in your face. Even though Jesus is very blunt with it, you know, unless you eat this flesh and drink this blood, you have no life within you. Um, it it to me it makes sense why um, other people that don't have a sacramental ecclesiology could read the Gospel of John and miss it, you know, because they're not they're not open to that, you know. But if you're open to the idea of the Eucharist and baptism and sacraments. You can see them, you know, just all over the place. But it makes sense if you think about John being the latest gospel and the most developed because it's taking sacramental theology and applying it in a way that is much more profound and detailed than you'd find, for example, in Mark's gospel. Does that make sense? All right. So, um, like, let me give you some examples of the different sacraments. You've got um, Cana. You know, which not only is baptism and Eucharist, but also marriage. Um, you've also got um, when Jesus is in the upper room and He breathes the Holy Spirit on them. You know, will that be like, you know, ordination, confirmation? Um, you've got the water and the blood um, with Cana and also with the side on the cross. Uh, you've got the bread of life discourse, and then you've got the vine. You think the vine? Well, what does a vine produce? Grapes, right? What do grapes produce? Wine, what does wine produce? Eucharist. So I mean, all this is really connected in a very profound way if you if you're just kind of open to that. So there are quite a few sacraments that work their way into the gospel as well. Um, in John's Gospel, too, it's there is this Jesus is very human and he's also very divine. And it seems a little strange because, like the other gospels, they they, they kind of keep this balance between the humanity and the divinity of Jesus. Well, Mark kind of goes out of his way to show his divinity and then he also goes out of his way to show his humanity. So it's almost like um, you've got these very strong peaks on both, emphasizing both aspects of his person but it's not trying to keep it in the middle so much it's just like overemphasizing both. It would be like turning the bass and the treble up totally on your stereo instead of just kind of keeping it in the middle. So maybe that helps for an analogy there, but so he really kind of focuses on that. Um, here's some examples of, of his divinity. For example, in the first chapter, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God, and the word was God. All right, pretty strong statement of his divinity there. Also, you've got um, Jesus, who is called the um, in one eighteen, you know, God the only Son. So it specifically connects God with the Son of God. You know, the divinity of God. And then later on in 518, you've got the Jews getting ready to try to stone Jesus because he's making himself equal to the Father. All right, the Jews understood what Jesus was saying. You know, and Jesus didn't say you misunderstood or anything like that. He's, you know, basically almost got stoned because he was teaching in a way that they clearly understood that he was making himself equal to the Father. Also, you've got. Um before Abraham was, I am. All right, so that um the I am phrase, you might recognize that from Exodus. When Moses goes and you know God reveals himself as Yahweh, which means I am, you know, I am, who am, whoever was. But that phrase is a divine name. So when Jesus says before Abraham was, I am, he's saying, you know, that he is divine, that he predates Abraham because he always was, he is. And he's equal to the Father there. And not only that, we'll, we'll see some of these later, but there are seven specific I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. So seven, of course, the number of completion, fulfillment, emphasis. And so in other words, John is specifically adding these words to Jesus seven specific times where he says, I am. All right, so if you miss the first I am, he's got six more coming. So anyway, that's, that's another w- Um, what you call like a literary tool you know and so when people say jesus wasn't divine it's like you'd have to basically throw john out the window in order to make that kind of argument and then ignore everything else in the other gospels too but especially with john in uh, chapter 20 when saint thomas sees jesus in the upper room he says my lord and my god you know And then people who don't believe in the divinity of Jesus would say, well, yeah, St. Thomas wasn't speaking to Jesus when he said, my Lord and my God. He was speaking, my Lord to Jesus and my God, to God the Father. But it's totally out of context, especially when you're looking at how John references these sort of things in the rest of his gospel. So anyway, Jesus was extremely divine, you know. So the trouble's all the way up. All right, well, also we have the human part. So this is the base, all right. So Jesus he's tired, he's thirsty, he's hungry, he cries, he's physical, he's doing things like spitting in dirt and making mud and smearing it on the people's eyes. Uh, The point is is that Jesus, his, his feet are in the earth, he's grounded, he's human. And so, you know, John especially shows this aspect of Jesus. Now, one reason he did is because some of those Gnostic groups were teaching that You know, well, it would be beneath Jesus to be human. It would be beneath Jesus to be material. He must have pretended that he was a human being, but he was actually an angel. You know, that's what most Gnostics actually would teach later on, where John is basically showing his humanity to counter that and saying, no, he was totally divine, but he is totally human at the same time. So it was kind of a way of showing that by showing Jesus is thirsty and hungry and crying and all that. Also, the, the idea of revelation was extremely important in that time, you know, revealed. And uh, Jesus is the revelation of the Father. So, he comes to earth and he reveals the Father. And that's kind of part of the, uh, the style and the teaching. All right, Let me see where I'm at here. All right, so now I'm going to talk about some of the sevens. Okay, I already mentioned one. Um, I talked about the seven I am statements, and you all know what the seven, the number seven means, right? It's not like seven's a magic number or anything, but it was it was like a literary device to show completion, fulfillment, and emphasis. And in this case, we have, in John's gospel, a lot of these different sevens. All right, so, so the first of all, we've got seven signs. All right, remember when I was talking about these miracles? So there are seven specific signs in the Gospel of John. So in other Gospels, there's just a whole bunch and a whole mess of miracles. John's very selective. He only selects seven. And he does that because seven is fulfillment, right? It's completion. And so therefore, he's just pointing out seven specific miracles. And then he has a little phrase at the end saying, if I were to report all, there wouldn't be enough books to fill up, you know. But seven are specific to show something more than the signs themselves. So first sign, turning water into wine. Second one, healing of the royal official's son. Third one, healing the man at Bethesda. The fourth one, feeding of the 5,000, multiplication of the loaves. Um, Fifth one, walking on water. The sixth one, healing the man born blind. The seventh one, the raising of Lazarus. All right, so there are seven miracles. Now, of course, there is this greatest sign which, of course, is Jesus on the cross, like um, the bronze serpent in the desert when they lifted it up. Jesus talked about himself being lifted up. um, It was the greatest sign is his sacrifice and the cross. And then, you know, secondarily, actually the resurrection. But in John's gospel, he makes it a point of really showing Jesus the Lamb of God who was sacrificed and offered. And he even has a different timeline than the other Gospels when it comes to the Passover itself. Jesus is the Passover lamb in John's Gospel, whereas Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Passover is celebrated before. You know, so So the timing's even different because John is showing a theological difference where the Passover actually is Jesus literally as the Passover lamb being offered to the Father. So anyway, sometimes people say, well, the the Bible disagrees, you know, they can't even agree on the timeline. Well, that's because they have different theological perspectives that are going into the timeline, you know, and and actually there's, you know, it's a whole lot more complicated than this, but um, when you're looking at at John's tradition, it also affects, for example, Easter, and it also affects, you know, because like in the Eastern Church that tend to uh, follow John's description of things, they have a different date of Easter than the Western Church, which tended to follow... Matthew, Mark, and Luke's uh, version of the timeline. So, anyway, another little trivia thing you can throw out there when you're at work. All right. So, anyway, those those are seven signs. There also are the seven I am statements. All right. So, so I'm going to just read. I'll just read them off. I am the bread of life. All right. Chapter six thirty five. I am the light of the world. Chapter eight twelve. Before Abraham was, I am. Okay. Chapter 858. I am the Good Shepherd. Chapter ten, verse eleven. I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter eleven, twenty-five. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter fourteen, verse six. I am the true vine. Chapter fifteen one. So seven I ams. Kinda cool, huh? So Alright, so anyway, those are the, the biggest. Those are the biggest and most obvious sevens that you have with John. But there are actually other ones, too. Now, these ones are a little looser, and some people can, you know, you, you kind of fudge a little bit on it, but, there's, but it seems like it also kind of plays out in these other ways. So there are seven witnesses. There's John the Baptist, Nathaniel, Peter, and then there's Jesus, the central and greatest witness, and then you have Martha, Thomas, and John. So there's seven witnesses, you know, to Jesus' messiahship. Also, you have these seven ways of faith. You know, seven ways to come into faith or to picture faith. And that would be look, drink, hear, enter, feed, come, and receive. So those are the, um, the different actions that bring people to faith. All right, seven of those too. There are seven ways that Jesus is equal with God or equal with the Father. He's equal in working, knowing, resurrecting, judging, honor, Regenerating and self-existence. <coughs> so, as you can see, the you know the last three things that I talked about, those sevens were, you know, not as tight as maybe the first two, but still, you do see a pattern there. Uh, for John, was very important to show that fulfillment, completion, and and all that is by using that you know that number seven. Okay, so. Okay so now we'll look a little at the purpose of the gospel of John. So first of all it was the identity of the Christian church and it was also among or against the Jewish opposition because there there was in John's gospel a you know a much much more antagonistic or adversarial relationship with the Jews and the followers of Jesus. And it's played out, actually, a lot of times you'll hear this, this kind of like a phrase, the Jews. You know, it's like the, the leaders. Because the Jews doesn't mean, when they say the Jews in John's gospel, it doesn't mean, you know, the multitude or the mass of the people. It means specifically the leaders. All right, so those who are the leaders of the, the Jewish faith in Jesus' own time, you know, that's what John refers to as the Jews. And you'll see it especially in, in the Passion when his main opposition tends to be from the Jews all right that doesn't mean all the jewish people it means the leaders you know who have who have found um jesus a threat and so they're persecuting him and ultimately you know it would lead to his death also uh it's it's showing that That following Christ is one that leads one from death to life to the promised land. That Jesus is the Messiah who's lifted up, and He's the Paschal Lamb, and um, it brings all of this out in a way that if you're a Christian, that you're also living a fulfilled um, what they call eschatology. It's the idea of of bringing all the promises of the Old Testament into fruition, and so that's you know the follower of Jesus and. You know, From that follower of Jesus, of course, comes the church. Because the church at this time was you know, alive and, and was growing, but also being persecuted. Also, it was a, a counter to the beginning of the Gnostic uh, movement. And this was especially true in different areas in Egypt, where it was strong, and also up north in Asia Minor. And so we kind of talked a little bit about that as well. The, the idea of the divinity of Jesus without um, getting rid of the humanity of Jesus because the Gnostic faith would have gotten rid of the humanity of Jesus because it would not have fit into their concept of you know having a material physical being who's also a spiritual being all right so um, the the idea of salvation and belief in Jesus and Jesus revealed in the incarnation and the cross it's the, the whole idea is that the revelation that jesus brings is more than just knowledge it's actually saving action and so that is lived out and shown through these greater signs so you have the beginning of the signs that were were being laid out until you had the greatest sign which is d- his death and resurrection but all signs are not just wow look how great god is he did that miracle but it's this miracle brings someone to faith you know because the the whole point of the sign is that that was Jesus reaching out to bring someone to the revelation of knowledge of the Father and of salvation in Christ, salvation in God. So that was part of it. Okay, so now some of the theology of John, and this will just be the last section. I've got it in seven parts. Anyway, so in the theology of John, you've got Jesus' control. He's in control. Now in Mark's gospel, for example, if you read it, um, you get this this feeling or this perception of Jesus who gets dragged to his death, almost seemingly against his will. You know, and you see the cruelty, and you see the um, just the baseness of the whole thing. Where in John's Gospel, it tends to be Jesus is totally in control, and everything that happens to him, he is not the victim; he goes willingly. And it's just a whole different perception and perspective. So. Um one example is here's Jesus as he's in the garden of Gethsemane and they they come to arrest him, right? Now in the other gospels they just kind of accuse him, grab him and drag him off, where in in John's gospel, you know, they say, "Where is Jesus of Nazareth?" and then he goes, "I am he." And then what do they do? They all fall to the ground because you know, Jesus is so great, you know, that that when he says I am, you know, they can't handle it and they, they hit the ground and, and prost- like prostate, prostrate. I always mix those two up, <laughs> prostrate. So anyway, they fall prostrate showing that even if they didn't outwardly recognize him as divine, their action shows him as divine. You know, that Jesus is control. He's God. They're not going to take him against his will. He goes willingly and knowingly. And so they're falling prostrate shows that you know, they physically recognize it even if they don't um consciously. So anyway, that's part of that. Also in uh in the other gospels, Jesus has a little help carrying his cross. This little Simon of Cyrene, you know, from Luke's gospel. And in John's gospel there's no Simon of Cyrene. Jesus takes his own cross and it says that he picks up his own cross and goes. So it shows Jesus is in control. He's in control. He doesn't need anyone else's help. And and the idea is not that he doesn't physically, but it's that as his role, his function, and what he's about as Messiah shows that he willingly goes to his death. He picks up his own cross and he goes to his own death. You know, he wasn't dragged against his will. And it shows that symbolically by him picking up his own cross and going to his death. All right, once again, Details that sometimes people will say, well, you know, those you know, gospels don't agree. Here it says that he had help, and here it says he picked up his own cross. Uh, Different theological perspectives. So Jesus is in control. Also, he is the revelation of the Father. He is the life and the light. And he not only is, but he reveals to us through faith that he is the way, the truth, and the life, basically. It shows in what he says and what he does. And, you know, that idea of God breaking open the heavens and revealing himself through Jesus. All right, revelation. Crucifixion is the high point of saving revelation for those who see with faith. All right, so, so in John's perspective, if you look at Jesus being crucified with the eyes of faith, that will lead you to conversion. You know, because that's the, that's the, the, the central point. Of the gospel, now in uh, he parallels this actually, and even mentions it when he's talking with you know, as the serpent was lifted up in the desert, so will the Son of Man be lifted up, and those who look upon him will be saved. Well, because in the desert they looked upon the serpent, and when they looked upon the serpent, they were healed of those snake bites. Well, here you know, if we look upon the crucified Christ, then we will be saved, but not of snake bites, but of death and sin you know, that he will conquer those. You know, it's that idea of, uh, you know, like the serpent being lifted up. Well, here you have Jesus being lifted up as the son of man. So incidentally, with that Nicodemus thing, you'll notice how it took Nicodemus quite a while to get to that point too. It kind of progressed. Um, When Jesus was talking about being born again, um, that's kind of an important spot actually, but not typically for the reasons why you probably have heard so let me see if I can find this. Nicodemus. Okay, so here's the the like. Not going to read the whole thing, but you you know the story here, right? God's so love the world. He said His only Son. You must be born again, born in water and spirit. How can I be born again? I can't crawl in my mother's womb again. You know, Nicodemus, you're supposed to be the smartest guy here, and what the heck? You know, you don't even get these basic things. How, If you can't even get these basic worldly things, how are you going to understand heavenly things? You know, light, darkness, you know, earth, heaven, contrast being done here. But that water and spirit, you know, that being born again is really not, I accept Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. You know, we, we tend to think that because it's such a common um, expressed things in a lot of theological circles. But... And the reference here, when you're thinking about being born in water and spirit, um, what he's really talking about here is baptism. Remember when I was talking about some of the sacramental elements in, in John's gospel? And so, so you can even hear, like, what is born of human nature is human, but what is born of the spirit is spirit. And then you must be born from above, where the wind blows where it pleases, um, but you cannot tell where it's coming from. So everyone who is born of the spirit Okay, born of the spirit. How are you born of the spirit? Baptism. You know, that's where you're you're entering into the church and into the life of Christ. And then he goes on, you know, talking about that and here's where Moses being lifted up and this sort of thing. So it shows the connection with with Jesus's death with baptism as well, you know, being born again in Christ. And then just to kind of make it a little interesting, after he's done, you know, go ahead and read the chapter 3, but After this, Jesus went with his disciples into the Judean Judean countryside and stayed with them there and baptized. So in John's gospel, Jesus and his disciples go out and baptize after his little speech about being born again. Coincidence? So anyway, so really when you're talking about being born again, it includes the idea of accepting Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior and all that, but it also includes the right of entry into the church through baptism. So, anyway, that's kind of a nice little thing in there. All right, so we talked about the sacraments being described by signs and allegories. So, sacraments don't get spelled out in a way that Jesus is saying, you know, there's this baptism, and baptism is where you die and rise in Christ, and in baptism, that's where your original sin is washed away, and you're entered into the church. He doesn't do it like catechism. He does it through these allegories and through these analogies and these signs. Um, also, there is something about high Christology and low Christology. Have you ever heard those terms used before? So for example of low Christology would be, you know, kind of the humanness of Jesus. And if they're going to talk about a gospel that has low Christology, they typically would use Mark's gospel and they would say mark has low christology because jesus seems extremely human he's suffering and he calls himself the son of god and there are these divine elements of course in the gospel there but it's not what you'd call like in your face divinity all right where john's gospel you know you've got that in your face divinity of jesus you know he's very clear and and, and very uh, profound about it um but the interesting thing about like i mentioned with the base and trouble being turned up on both um John's gospel also has a very low Christology. And that means that um although Jesus is very divine, he also shows himself as is being um you know very human, but in a different way. And that was like with the uh you know drinking, eating, being tired and thirsty and all that sort of thing. So it kind of shows a little bit of those too. All right, one last thing and and I kind of brought this up but just to kind of conclude with the gospels sometimes people read Gospels as if they're literal history. And there is obviously a lot of history in the Gospels. And sometimes we have to take a step back and say, okay, so the way the books were written in the Gospel format, um, is it always supposed to be literal history? And if it's not literal history, is it somehow less true? Well, it's, it's kind of a good question to think about that. But like, um, for example, with the did Jesus pick up his own cross and go to his death? Or did he have Simon of Cyrene help him toward his death? And so if you take the theological reason why John said it how he said it, and you take the theological reason why Luke said it how he said it, you know, Luke's talking about discipleship. We need to pick up our cross and follow after Christ, and look how Simon did this, and we need to do the same. We follow after Christ. Simon followed after Christ. Um, John talks about, well, Jesus went to his death willingly. He was in charge. He's the Lord. He's the Savior. And he doesn't do anything by accident. You know, well, they're both emphasizing different aspects, but the event still happened, but they're describing something more than just the event itself. You know, and and that's, I think, the difference between um, Scripture and literal history. Literal history... Literal history is explaining things in a way that this happened, then that happened, then that happened, then that happened. And if you want to verify it, you know, hear the facts. Whereas theological history is still true. It still happened and it was centered in events. But the way it's explained explains something greater than just merely the events. So you actually know more truth by understanding it in a scriptural context. All right, did I lose you on that one? Okay, because I think, you know, especially nowadays, because you have people that they try to poke holes in the whole concept of Christianity and in the Bible itself, and they say that, you know, they'll point out a discrepancy in the Bible and then somehow think that because, you know, well, there is no Darius the Mede, so the Bible must not be true. You know, well, no, it's, it's you don't understand how the Bible was written. It was a literary genre, which is different than literal history. All right, so anyway, especially with the Gospels, it's good to keep that in mind. Um, it can be easy to say, well, wait a minute, I thought Jesus did this, and over here it says he did this. You know. Well, the event still happened. It's just that different Gospels bring out different truths by, by taking that event and describing it in a way that tells a deeper truth. So if you're reading around and you, you kind of find that, wow, this, this seems different or strange, always ask that question. Okay, what's the deeper truth here? that this explains because salvation history is is kind of like on another level. So it doesn't mean it's not true. It just means that there's something more to be understood. And so that's an invitation for us to understand something more. All right. I think we're done. So I'm kind of debating on what to do with Paul because Thanksgiving week Next Tuesday's Thanksgiving, which is like a, in that week, and then I'm thinking if I even get two studies done before Christmas, then that'll probably be good to get through an introduction to Paul, because Paul's kind of complicated, so I think we'll just make that our goal, but next week we won't have class, but then um, we'll pick it up after Thanksgiving for a couple weeks, and then maybe wait till January before we keep going, so just kind of keep posted, but next Tuesday I'm not going to meet, and then... Uh, um, I've got to figure out how to do this where we don't have our penance service either. So just read the bulletins and we'll announce it. That's probably the safest way. And if, if it doesn't work because I have too many penance services, we'll just pick up in January. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.